0: morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. My guest today is William Neal, writer-director of Long Gone Wild, a documentary that focuses on captive orcas and is noted countless times prior to uh, this morning. Picks up where blackfish left off. Well, there is some review with the newer film surveying the number and location of the killer whales in captivity both in North America and worldwide, and outlining the stark differences between life in captivity and life in the wild. This movie takes a panoramic view of the orca world, including offering crucial history, like about when the first orca was put on public display, devoting some time to the whale sanctuary, which you may recall we discussed on the show recently, with... Sanctuary founder, Dr. Lori Marino, and that China is building numerous marine parks where orcas perform. But these new facilities reflect strangely antiquated architecture and technology suggesting American marine parks of the 1960s. We'll hear more of Long Gone Wild and the man who wrote and directed the film when I speak with William Neal in just a moment here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in the program, I'll speak with Debbie Burns, vice president of the Friends of Largo and Nature Park, having served as a volunteer for seven years. We'll speak with her about the Birds of Prey exhibit, which had to close for about three months because of the pandemic, then recently reopened. So we'll hear all about that and meet some of those specific raptors later in the program. Right now, though, let's talk orcas with William Neal. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is William Neal on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Bill.
1: Good morning, Duncan.
0: Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals.
1: Sure. Good to be with you.
0: Great. So... I've long had a real soft spot for orcas, and we've covered captive orcas extensively on this show over the years. So against that backdrop, let me first say I really enjoyed Long Gone Wild. I learned some new things, and on a related note, I have some um, new worries, I guess, when it comes to orcas, but we'll uh, address those uh, momentarily before we address the film. Let's address the filmmaker. Can you give us sort of the nickel tour of your career prior to making Long Gone Wild?
1: Sure. Um, well, I had a kind of a 180 180- Uh, turn in my career I was a college and professional hockey coach uh, and ended up um, working for ESPN uh, as a color commentator which uh, brought me into the entertainment world and um, uh, so and I found that I really enjoyed that and ended up uh, in Chicago with a uh, working with a small production company there and um, ended up doing a video called The Super Bowl Shuffle uh, with the Chicago Bears, <laughs> which ended up to be an incredible success. And I went on from there to uh, eventually moved to, to L.A. and Hollywood and uh, worked in the television industry for a number of years, um, culminating as executive producer of E! True Hollywood Story, which uh, was about uh, uh, biography-type shows. Focused mostly on celebrities, yeah. And then uh, from there, I uh, uh, I decided I wanted to get into writing, so I've written uh, written some books and uh, and then uh, uh, jumped into the documentary world uh, three years ago.
0: Wow. Well, that covers a lot of ground. I have to say, uh, it's not uncommon for folks that are guests on this show to have kind of a varied and often colorful background. But I'm pretty sure. You're the first professional hockey coach that's been on the show. so um, And I'm pretty dopey when it comes to hockey, but my wife is from Montreal. So needless to say, I've been somewhat educated uh, in the hockey realm. And, and one of my best friends is actually the team photographer for the Anaheim Ducks. So, so I, I'm slowly getting up to speed, but it uh, sounds like you were deeply steeped in it for many years.
1: I was, yeah, that was that was my life for a long time, and then, as I said, uh, I did kind of a one hundred and eighty and got into the entertainment world.
0: So, given that one hundred and eighty and sort of the ensuing years, to what extent do you miss kind of being in the throes of the hockey world?
1: Oh, sometimes I do, um, but I kind of look at it as a different chapter. And so I, you know, I've been uh, I've had a a nice career in television, and then, of course, doing this documentary and excuse me, and writing some books. So, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a different approach to things. But basically, they're both entertainment anyway, right? So um, uh, I, I still find myself enjoying it.
0: So we covered a lot of ground. And so I guess the books sounds like kind of were the more direct transition into documentaries. Had you done some documentaries prior to Long Gone Wild?
1: I had not, No. Yeah, uh, I wrote a book back in 2010, it'd be, uh, 10 years ago now, it's hard to believe, called Rogue Justice, um, <clears throat> which is on Amazon still. And it was about killer whales. And that's really where uh, my interest really peaked about killer whales, was back writing that book. And then uh, right around that time, of course, Don Branshaw was killed by Tilikum uh, in a SeaWorld park which um, two years later, of course, Blackfish came out. So um, that was kind of my introduction into the killer whale world.
0: Well, let's really delve into that. I mean, let's talk for a moment about the... uh orca in the room maybe so meaning blackfish of course so i think it's safe to say that was a hugely successful and enormously influential film that raised the awareness of millions of people especially because of the cnn deal i guess uh, about captive orcas so now you're gearing up to make a documentary about captive orcas what was that like sort of falling in the wake of, of blackfish
1: well, you're right. That was a very influential film, very well done film, and deserved all the uh, accolades it got. And uh, as you mentioned, when when it aired on CNN, it, it had an enormous audience. And, but as I watched that unfold, um, after it had been out a year or two, I realized that uh, a whole lot, a number of things were cascading in the wake of Blackfish. Um, SeaWorld, of course... The stock tank, they almost put SeaWorld out of business. Yeah. They tried desperately to spin the story in their favor, which really didn't work. And then there were lawsuits that followed, and OSHA, of course, banned the trainers eventually from being in the water with the orcas for performances. Yeah. Uh, and so all of these things started happening. But as I looked at this and all the influence that, Uh, Blackfish had on viewers nothing changed for the whales. Hmm. They were still there. yeah, And they were still performing every day. And so I thought you know, uh, this is time it's been, when we started this project, it had been five years since Blackfish had come out and I thought, you know, this is a perfect time to bring people up to speed and and what's going on. The, The positive changes but also the fact that the orcas were still there, and then, of course, things were happening with Russia and China, which we can talk about later.
0: Oh, for sure. I, among the, the stuff that was sort of, I guess, post-Blackfish, for lack of a better phrase, or certainly things that were revelations, at least to me, that certainly followed the the Blackfish period. That was important information that's in your film, and, and that's what I mentioned earlier that as much as I enjoyed the film, it did create in me a new set of worries. So, yeah, we will definitely uh, circle back to uh, China in particular, but sort of what role Russia plays in, in that as well. So let me first just mention this is Talking Animals on WMNF. If you just tune in, I'm Dunga Strauss, and my guest is William Neal, the writer-director of Long Gone Wild, a documentary about captive orcas that can be watched at this point on a number of platforms, including Amazon Prime. If you'd like to ask Bill a question or offer a comment, please call eight one three two three nine nine six six three email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So in a way you kind of answered one question that I sort of had because I thought again with following in the wake of blackfish it'd be tricky and I wondered what sort of trepidation you might have. But then I also got to thinking maybe in some ways following in that way given the orca story for better or worse is a gigantic story with a lot of elements to it that you might actually find it easier in a way to follow blackfish had blackfish not existed. And it sounds like in some ways, especially noting that really not much had changed for the whales when all was said and done, that that almost created a, a good opening for something like Long Gone Wild.
1: Well, it did. And as I said, it, um, you know, there were so many things were happening uh, post-Blackfish that I I just thought uh, an updated version. And it really, uh, you know, it's really not a sequel. A lot of people have sort of called Long Gone Wild a sequel to Blackfish, but I think it's a very different film. And of course, uh, one of the key things and you mentioned in in your opening, um, uh, the Whale Sanctuary Project, that was one of the key motivators as well, because I saw not only were there uh, issues uh, with the whales still being there, but finally there was an element of hope that maybe one day they could get out uh, of those uh, concrete tanks. And that's where you know, the whale sanctuary came in. So I saw that as a a key element to our documentary that, of course, was not around when Blackfish
0: came out. Right, and as I also mentioned in the opening, just two, three weeks ago I guess it was, I spoke with Dr. Marino and she's been a guest previously on the show, but we talked specifically about the whale sanctuary and yeah, one of the things that was kind of the core of, of that conversation at least from my standpoint was that given everything that's been addressed in books and films and elsewhere about captive orcas, the problem has always been like, yeah, I do have a problem here, they're extremely complex uh, sophisticated animals, and You are seeing all the upshots of what what captivity does to them and echolocation and just all the stress and things and obviously unfortunate incidents with Tillicum and others. But what can you do about it? So the whale sanctuary finally kind of provides an answer to that.
1: Yes, they absolutely do. And you're right, SeaWorld, um, for all the issues that there there are surrounding captive orcas, they, you know, they're... um, Default position was, well, you know, you want us to release the whales, but where are they going to go? Yeah. They were right about that because they obviously cannot be released back into the wild. Uh, They're not, most most of them have been bred, and so they don't know how to hunt. They don't know how to kill. So SeaWorld did have a valid point, but no more because the State Whale Sanctuary Project now has their site located, which I'm sure you talked to uh, to Lori about.
0: Yeah, we did, and and we. We also talked about, at least for now, and and I guess the hope is that this will change over time, is that even with the solution and even now with the specific location selected, SeaWorld still seems, let's just say, unsupportive of the idea of a whale sanctuary, which is harder to understand since there is a viable solution that you know the advisory board is uh looks like a zoom call gone nuts i mean there must be 25 30 people that are all huge experts in various related fields that have uh, come together to work on the whale sanctuary and many of those were part of the i guess committee that that helped select the location so you feel like you've got the best uh, minds and experts in the business working on this and again arriving at the location so i'm just not quite sure at this point what sea world's resistance is especially since a lot of what they used to do is no longer really possible in terms of orca shows and just by their own s- announced policies
1: yes well you know for, i think for seaworld to um to acquiesce to a uh uh to letting a, a couple of whales out i think that you know they they would essentially have to admit that they've been wrong for the last 50 some years and i think that might be at the core of it yeah. Uh, plus, it's you know the whales are still a draw. They do not promote them like they used to because of uh, Blackfish and Long Gone Wild and 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 uh, other programming. But uh, um, I think that is at its core the reason that uh, that they're reluctant to even you know enter into the conversation to release the whales. Uh, the fear I think would be that wow, what if it works? Right. <laughs> Yeah. Then we've got, then we, then what do we do? Because they have 20 work is right now what do we do with if we, we let two out what about the other 18 and so on yeah so it
0: has a domino effect no, no doubt and it is tricky but uh but as as dr marino and i touched on on a plus side when it comes to SeaWorld, which is not a phrase that comes out of my mouth too often they do have tremendous expertise and more than a few resources so if they could ever get over that uh that hurdle that i think you correctly identify the teaming, if if it got to that point, it could be quite. Hello, Hello? Uh, this is. Hi, question. you're on the air live on uh, Talking Animals. Please watch your language. I don't know if I snipped that quickly enough or not. I, I didn't even know there was a call in the air yet. I hadn't put it on the air.
1: Okay, um, I have a question. Uh, which uh, are, are uh, killer whales and dolphins of equal intelligence? And do killer whales use echolocation? Oh, absolutely. Yes. In fact. Uh, Killer whales actually are not whales at all. They're the the, uh, top of the uh, scale on dolphins. They're actually dolphins. Killer whales are actually dolphins. And yes, they are extremely intelligent and on a par with dolphins.
0: Thank you, caller, for that question. And we also had a an emailed uh question which I think probably can be answered fairly quickly, uh, Bill. This one just says, uh, hi Duncan, are orcas hunted for food in Japan?
1: Um not for food. No, not yeah. in Japan. that's those are those are the uh the dolphin slaughters that uh that happen in Tai Chi every year that uh Rick O'Berry, who I went to China with on our documentary, of course, has been very instrumental in raising awareness about that whole issue, which is still uh, a major problem.
0: For sure. Yeah, we may may come back to Rick uh, as well, because he does, as you know, play a pivotal role in... Looking into uh, what's happening with orcas uh, now in China, which we definitely want to address. But I guess one of the questions I I was wondering about, and you kind of touched on him in passing, but coming into starting work on Long Gone Wild and knowing what you did in in preparation for that, how did you feel about Tilikum initially? Uh, In what respect? Well, I mean, just even unfortunately before the Don Branchow incident, a fairly notorious orca, with unfortunate history prior to that even. And I'm just curious how you felt. I mean, for example, in the film, I think it's Dr. Rose, among others, notes in the film just how tough Tillicum had it, not only just because he was a captive orca, but how sad she felt for everyone, including telecom when the horrible incident did happen that resulted in the death of Don branch and just sort of talking about him kind of floating there nearby and anyways it just uh, I think there's a lot of strong feelings that people had and still maybe even have about Telecom
1: I just wonder what yours might be oh absolutely yeah it was it was it was heartbreaking the whole story and you're right Telecom did have the history there had been two deaths uh, in captivity Uh In the wild, there's never been an an incident of a killer whale uh, killing a a human. Uh, But there have been, of course, in captivity. And Tillicum had two incidents prior to Don Branshaw. And, you know, uh, Tillicum is one of the largest killer whales ever in captivity. I I believe he was like 13,000 pounds. Yeah. And Don was probably 120 pounds. And so, you know, he may have just thought he was playing yeah, and had no idea, of course, um, what had happened. And, and as uh, Naomi Rose did say so eloquently in the documentary, how, you know, as he just kind of laid there because they had him in this tiny little uh, pinned off area after the incident and actually Don's. Uh, body was covered about fifteen feet away from him.
0: Yeah, um,
1: which which is <laughs> just enormously um, heart wrenching to see.
0: Yeah, no, it really was, and it was really poignant because I think she and others uh, speculated that just given the long relationship that Tilikum had with Don, that probably just couldn't even figure out what had happened. Once you start to get into intent, I think you're probably pretty far afield. But I think th- some of the thinking is that he certainly did not intend her to die. And and again, just as you say, a gigantic uh, orca, what may have been just a, kind of an extra playful moment turned into something tragic.
1: Yes, we interviewed Jeff Ventry, uh, who was a former SeaWorld trainer uh, for the film. And, and Jeff worked closely with Tillicum for a number of years. He was the senior trainer there, and, and he said the same thing, that it was just uh, Telecom certainly did not intend for this to happen. And, uh, you yeah, it's just a very, very tragic situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think he even said at one point, you know, that he was a, a, he was a good boy just based on their their working relationship. Right, exactly. so, yeah, that really stuck with me as well. So, again, this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is William Neal, the writer-director of Long Gone Wild, the documentary about captive orcas. The website for the film is longgonewild.com, which, among other things, has... Information about the people making the film and some of the issues that we're touching on, but also gets into providing platforms that now where you can see the film, including uh, Amazon Prime and others. So there's a number of places that, uh, depending on what, where you see your uh, streaming um, films, you can uh, catch up with Long Gone Wild if you haven't had a chance to see it just yet. As I noted before, among the bits of information that just sort of leaped off the screen for me is the information about Russia, and I guess maybe in some ways even especially about China. So for those who haven't seen the film or aren't otherwise familiar with this uh, just yet, can you talk uh, a bit about this, uh, particularly the the sort of trend that seems to be unfolding in China?
1: Sure. Um, Well, it's very disturbing uh, because China um, began a few years ago First of all, because the middle-class population is growing so rapidly, China has been building entertainment complexes, theaters, and other venues to address that growing population. Um, 15, 20 years ago, there virtually was no middle class in China, and they expect it to be as large as 800 million people by 2025, So, um, but part of that uh, growth was building marine theme parks. And they uh, really started going up practically on every corner, and there are now over 60 marine theme parks in China. And, of course, they can see that the number one draw at SeaWorld for decades was the killer whale shows. And so they have been... uh, acquiring killer whales they have now as uh, the latest count i believe is 15. um and they're confined to three parts at this point they have been performing in shanghai uh and uh, a park called chemlong in uh, in china which rick Barry, oh, Barry and i went to have the most orcas they have nine and they're getting ready to do performances there as well i think Obviously, obviously the virus has affected uh, attendance and that kind of thing, but um, they will get back to that. So that is a a very disturbing trend because uh, with 60 parks um, and currently three with with orcas housed, um, there could be many, many more. And um, they're coming from Russia.
0: Yeah, so I guess Russia is capturing the orcas and then delivering them to China for these uh, rapidly growing uh, marine parks.
1: Yes, exactly. And um, there, there has been a bit of good news just in the last few months. Um, Russia um, has what they call a red book, which is for, um, you know, animals that, um, that are on the, um, you know, that they, they don't want captured anymore. And uh, they have, uh, they call it the Red Book. And they have uh, uh, put the orcas, mammal eating orcas, on that Red Book um, so that they can, they, they're supposedly no longer to be captured, which is good news. But the problem is um, there's so much graft and corruption, and the whales are worth so much money um, up to $7 million a whale. That there's concern that that the black market will continue to do this um, and capture the whales, um, and and of course it doesn't uh, cover fish-eating mammal uh, whales, uh, which is the other. There's two species. There's animal. Or there's um, fish-eating and mammal-eating orcas, and they're very different. They look the same, but they're very different species, and so they have at least banned. Um, The capture of mammal-eating orcas, which we believe all of those captured from Russia initially were mammal-eating orcas.
0: Yeah, which I guess addresses another point, which is that what we have here, among other things, is people that are deeply inexperienced. I guess that's a good thing, except the upshot is not a good thing when it comes to uh, capturing and then training, I guess, and then having orcas perform. So you've got... People that don't really know that world or understand that world with very uh, young or at least freshly uh, captured orcas. So then you get into things like how at least in in a a marine park setting, a mammal-eating orca isn't really going to work in the way that they don't respond to fish the way that the fish-eating orcas do so it's a fundamental mistake right off the bat that may have any number of implications
1: yeah it's it is it is a double whammy. they're 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 uh, ripped away from their families in the wild and then they're uh, you know they're used to eating mammals and all of a sudden they're they're fed um frozen fish so yeah it's uh it's a major problem
0: and yet as you've uh Touched on a moment ago. I mean, there's tremendous uh, money at stake. I mean, even as we've seen in this country, captive orcas when they're performing and and especially when people can come out in droves and pay uh, the the entrance fee to the parks, et cetera, generates tremendous revenue Uh, for capturing these whales. Like you say, it can be six seven million dollars per orca, and then their ongoing value can even be in that range or higher. So. Yeah, corruption and uh other nefarious activities are almost uh, guaranteed.
1: And the and the stadiums that they have built in these parks, the the uh uh stadium in Chemelong uh, that they were building when we were there and and the one that opened in Shanghai, these are huge stadiums. They're probably half again bigger than the uh than the Orca Stadiums in uh at SeaWorld. So they you know they they clearly uh, see the dollar signs in bringing in the audiences for the killer whale shows. And you know they are spectacular, obviously. it is amazing I've been been up close and and uh, saw uh, Lolita, who is in of course in Miami aquarium for fifty years now. I was up close and and uh, to Lolita and they are magnificent animals to see but They just don't belong in concrete tanks,
0: Right. Yeah. Well, I I intended to ask you about Lolita amongst some of the other uh, solitary orcas that you profile in the film. But before we leave the topic of of stadiums, because uh, their massive size obviously struck you. But one thing that really struck me that I, I couldn't quite puzzle out uh, especially given the, the sort of money at stake and apparently at least being invested in in these new marine parks uh, being built in China, is that they seem uh, to reflect the structure and technology of American parks from the 60s. So I couldn't quite understand why, if they were going to do this at all, why they wouldn't have sort of a more modern approach and, and reflect some of the things that have been learned uh, here and elsewhere since the 60s.
1: Well, you know, it was interesting, uh, and Naomi Rose speaks to that. She's been there to China several times. Uh, there's a group called the China Cetacean Alliance, which uh, which she works closely with, who are working to address some of the issues of captive cetaceans. And part, she, you know, when Naomi speaks about that, part of the parts are. Seem very 60-ish, uh, as you mentioned. They, they, they just looked sort of tired and, um, and old. And then other parts of the parks um, were not that way at all. So I'm not sure where the thinking was in developing these parks, why they just didn't make them modern and current. But um, certainly the stadium in um, Shanghai, which is huge, um, it, it is a very modern structure. So I think um, at least when it comes to the killer whales, they're probably building pretty solid structures.
0: Oh, okay. That makes a little more sense because I, I, I just thought that's so at odds with everything else that they seem to be doing and striving for in China. So it sounds like that that maybe that point was more of an anomaly than consistent across the, the marine parks that they are building there.
1: When we... Uh, when we were at Chimelong Park uh, in Zhuhai, China, uh, Rick O'Berry and I, we went in to uh, watch the uh, beluga whale um, performances. And, um, you know, they had, uh, you know, a large screen behind the, the tank and, um, you know, the stadium itself was you know, pretty modern in its design. So, um, you know, they they have uh, in many ways, um, you know, stepped it up.
0: Okay, that makes more sense. So that's uh, that kind of rounds out that picture a little more completely. So that's good. So you, you mentioned Lolita, and like I said, I was going to ask about, because you do uh, profile some solitary orcas, and, I mean, people who've paid even passing attention to whether it's blackfish or any of the books or anything else that's been done or written or filmed or presented about orcas know uh how important their uh family and just networks and or even just uh, even if they're contrived as they often of course are at marine parks just that they really cannot and should not be alone it's again sort of important and pointed to uh have this profile of, of some of the ones that have been solitary for some time, and Lolita that, that you mentioned—that's uh, just over in in Miami—has been by herself for fifty some odd years, right?
1: Pretty much, yeah. She was she was captured back in nineteen seventy and uh, taken to the Miami Seaquarium. It is the smallest orca orca tank in the world, as far as we know. Um, and she did have a partner for about 10 years from uh, uh, 70 to 80, um, Hugo, but he uh, he eventually killed himself and um, bang, wrapping his head against the tank. So since 1980, uh, Lolita has been uh, by herself uh, with some dolphins who tend to be um, – you know, bother her more than they are company. So, yes, she's been alone, and the other two uh, whales that have spent decades in captivity by themselves are Kiska up in in uh, Niagara Falls, Canada, and Shemink down in South America, Argentina. So, um, those are those are three orcas that have spent uh, all this time alone, and it's just uh, hard to imagine. It would just be like putting a human being in solitary confinement for 50 years. Imagine what that would do to that person.
0: Right, and to underscore that point, there is a section of the film where someone who's studied the impact of solitary confinement in humans uh, is addressing what that would be like and what that likely is
1: like. Exactly, yeah. yeah.
0: So do you think, Bill, that if possible that these ones that have been sort of solitary should be kind of put at the head of the class, as it were, for being introduced to the whale sanctuary? Just I know that they're not going to do anything less than pairs when they launch the first animals in the sanctuary. I mean, I just don't know how you exactly triage this situation but it just seems like those whales should get first crack at this
1: well you would like to think so there there is a, a bit of a uh, of uh, controversy even among the whale experts about just what the best approach is uh, lolita for example seems to be in good health um but getting the actual um Health reports out of Miami Seaquarium is not always easy, though. Like um, SeaWorld, the trainers do care very much for these animals, and they do take good care of them in captivity. The problem is they just shouldn't be there. Yeah. The the question with somebody like with a with an orca like Lolita is, you know, is she healthy enough, uh, and would this be such a drastic change for her? that it wouldn't make sense. And, and you know, I think there's a, there's mixed uh, emotions about that among orca, orca lovers and orca experts as to exactly what the best approach should be. And, of course, one of the concerns would be that you certainly would not want to have an orca move to a whale sanctuary and then have it, you know either get sick or die, yeah, uh, and then kind of uh, set an example that, hey, you know, somebody like SeaWorld then says, hey, see, we told you it wouldn't work.
0: Right. You know, that's got to be tricky. So, and so I would think that given uh, the tremendous number of experts that are involved in the whale sanctuary, has there been anything, given the concerns raised about, for example, Lolita, Has there been a leaning of what whale, or at least what kind of whale, like what sort of uh, profile of a whale, should be among the first to be introduced to the sanctuary?
1: You know, I don't think they've gotten quite to that level yet. Okay. uh, Because um, they just don't know if or when they will uh, be able to release an orca I believe the plan with the Whale Sanctuary Project's recently selected site, which is at Port Hilford, Nova Scotia in Canada, yeah. uh, their plan is to bring in at least a couple of beluga whales uh, yeah. to begin with and uh, and then go from there.
0: Yeah, no, I found that interesting that uh, they look like that. At least there was that much consensus that they were going to start with belugas as opposed to orcas, yeah. So we're nearing the end of our time, uh, Bill, but let's, uh, let's get another caller involved if we can. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Bill Neal. Hi, yes, sir. Um, I was wondering how large of a facility, I mean, if it's humanly possible to build one, or um, my idea would be to use... Uh, the reservoir that I think's out in Arizona, there's this massive concrete reservoir. Um, could you put put a whale in something that size? So, are you talking about for the sanctuary? Yeah, I mean, yeah. um I thought that you know, since since the coral reefs are being destroyed down in the Keys, that you know, if if they were to take that reservoir, salinate it, um, because from what I understand, if they're just using it for fresh water anyway, you can still desalinate the water you know, for for whatever purposes they're currently using it for and still um, save the coral reefs and have a nice sanctuary for, you know, for the whales. While well, that bill step uh, in, I'm just going to quickly say that they do have a site picked uh, already. That is within a body of water, and I think for some of the animals, belugas and others, that they really need kind of cold water. But I also think that the hope is of the folks working on the whale sanctuary is that there will be multiple sanctuaries, whether they open them themselves or other people emulate what they've done. So it may be that an idea like yours may be reached depending on the kind of whales in question. Bill, go ahead, though, please. No, that's,
1: no, good, good, good answer, Duncan. And I think one of the key things is that that they're looking for with the the uh, sanctuaries is that these are large codes that actually. Um, Bring the whales back into their natural environment, and they're and they're netted off at one end so that the whales get um, get fed, they get veterinarian care, but they're in as close to their natural environment as possible. And I think that's the the, the primary goal with the sanctuaries.
0: Yeah, on a sort of related note, I, I was struck by one of the experts interviewed in your film saying that that's exactly how it would work, and yet there's. Seems to be no concern that the whales would leap over or otherwise transcend the net; that they would actually just kind of stay put.
1: They they would. That that is behavior that they're very confident is uh, is the way it would be. Yeah, and uh, they've seen it before, and uh, uh, of course the whales would you know, would would know where they're getting fed and where they're being cared for. So I, I don't think, uh, you know, trying to escape is, is is an issue.
0: Yeah, gotcha. All right, caller, thank you for your call. So, Bill, I think we have just about reached uh, the, the end of our time, but uh, we've been speaking with William Neal. Again, his film is Long Gone Wild. The website, one more time, is longgonewild.com. And as it notes there, and we've mentioned it a couple times, uh, you can see the film on any number of platforms, including Amazon Prime and, uh, I think, iTunes and a number of others. So, Bill, thank you so much for uh, making the time to uh, join us today on Talking Animals. And, again, uh, congratulations on a, on a wonderful film.
1: Thank you so much, Duncan. Pleasure to be with you. And if I could just leave one thing with uh, listeners is uh, the, the, the 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 very end of our film, we say whatever you do, don't buy a ticket.
0: Right, and yeah. the
1: best way to deal with these uh, with these parks. is just don't
0: buy a ticket. Yeah, there's a real chorus of that, which I think really uh, makes the message even more effective. So again, thank you very much, Bill. Thanks, Duncan. Take care. Yeah. In a moment, I'll speak with Debbie Burns about the Birds of Prey exhibit at the Nature Center in Largos, McGraw, nature park the exhibit had to close down for about three months because of COVID 19 and recently reopened we'll hear about those raptors the impact of being shut down and what's happening with the birds presently right now though we're going to step into the comedy corner i figured in the wake of my conversation with bill neal we should probably do something orca and or sea world related so this is this is both really with a slightly older piece by Ron White on Talking Animals in the Comedy Corner on WMNF
2: Early last year in Florida at SeaWorld of Florida an animal trainer was killed by a killer whale Huh <laughs> Turns out there's a reason they didn't name them ocean ponies Some things are exactly as they seem, folks. Killer whales kill. Pilot whales wear dark sunglasses. I'm not sure how the sperm whale got his name. But I'm not getting in the pool. That whale got his job back. They put that whale back in the show. Now when I first saw it on the internet I mean, this will be world news It wasn't even news at all They put the whale back this, this whale killed three people This is a serial killer whale And he got his job back If that would have happened at SeaWorld of Texas That whale would have gone straight to the electric pool And that's just a regular pool With a toaster thrown in it
0: That was Ron White with a piece called Killer Whale, taken from his album A Little Unprofessional. Now it's time to speak with Debbie Burns about the Birds of Prey exhibit at the Nature Center in Largo's Magon Nature Park. This is Debbie Burns on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Debbie. Good
3: morning. How are you?
0: I'm really great. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals
3: awesome yeah i'm pleased to be
0: here great so maybe let's start with just a quick overview of the exhibit how did it come together and how are the birds that featured in it how did they end up with that? are they injured and, and being rehabilitated oh, exactly.
3: uh, it's a, it's actually a city park but uh about oh 15 years ago or so maybe the the city wanted to close it down and all the neighbors uh, put up a, a you know they didn't want it to close they started a group called Friends of Largo Nature Parks and told the park told the city that they would help them keep the park open so one of the things they did was they had like one or two owls at the time. So over the years it has grown and, uh, with different people that have been in charge and now we are up to 22 raptors. They all are injured, have injuries that prevent them from being out in the wild. Most of them would be eye injuries or wing injuries. Um, so we give them a home. The alternative would have been they would have put down. So we use them for education. So the city lets us use their property, but we, uh, as a non-profit have to pay for all their enclosures and their food and so on. Well, during the pandemic, we weren't able to take the birds anywhere. We uh, get a lot of our money going to uh, different festivals or schools, nursing homes, any of those type places, and so without being able to take them anywhere, we you know, we were still slowly losing money and it costs between uh, I'd say 1000 and 1500
0: a month to feed the birds. Wow. But that does add up quickly if there's nothing uh, coming in right, to offset right. that, right? Yeah. Where are they housed when they're not on display?
3: They're always on display. Okay. Uh, the, the larger birds are, at least anyway. We have uh, we have a bald eagle. We have two great-horned owls, two barred owls, two red-shoulder hawks, two red-tailed hawks, a Mississippi kite, and ten screech-owls wow so the screech owls are inside the nature center um in smaller cages but the ones outside are always on display but when the building itself was closed down during the pandemic people weren't even really coming to the park to even walk around so much so um you know we have donation boxes placed around but you know again not many people were you know around so we've been you know hanging on we're doing we're doing we're not you know it's We'll take care of the birds, but it's just been a little tough.
0: So where, uh, with that in mind, uh, Debbie, where, where, if someone's listening and saying, geez, well, let's, uh, maybe I could send a couple of bucks to help out the birds. Where would the website or other online?
3: uh... Um, You could go to, uh, we have a Facebook page, uh, the Friends of Largo Nature Parks, and we have a button on there. You can use PayPal or come to the park. Uh, If you are in the Largo area and you were heading towards, uh, Indian Rocks Beach. Right before you cross the drawbridge, turn right, and we are right along the intercoastal, so it's a nice little place
0: to stop. That sounds cool. So tell me about, let's say, one, maybe two at the most specific birds that stand out to you amongst those uh, 22.
3: Oh, oh boy. I would say probably the bald eagle. Uh, yeah. She's probably, you know, she is the only one that didn't come from Florida. Uh, All the Others we have were residents of Florida. She was actually found in Kentucky and, um, and eventually was life-flighted to Missouri, and then we obtained her from Missouri. And her injury is just something that's a, a mystery to the world. We have been sending her feathers everywhere. She has a genetic feather disorder that wasn't triggered until she was like three or four years old. She was fine up to that age, and all of a something something triggered this disorder, and she can't fly. She loses all her flight feathers. They just fall out or they grow in crooked, and um, we sent samples to CDC, to uh, Alaska, everybody who um, knows things about eagles, and they said it was triggered by um, a toxin, but a toxin that they don't know of. Wow which is kind of
0: weird. Yeah. 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 So, so we're, that's an interesting one. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm afraid we're almost at the end of our time, but I read somewhere um, that the birds are bothered by people wearing masks.
3: Um, it's more so because uh, that's kind of how they, rec- you know, they, they use their eyes sure, and, and their hearing more than anything. So um, even as much as they know me, if I wear a mask around and they're just not sure who I am, there's something, you know, now they, uh, they hear me speaking, then that calms them down a little yeah. bit. But the initial, you know, they have a recognition and that they don't realize who it is.
0: So interesting. And, I mean, of course, it makes perfect sense based on how much of their, uh, your or anyone else's that's around them all the time, identity would be concealed By a mask but uh, i just was struck by that and certainly do not want to feed into any of the ongoing debate about masks but i just i just thought it was fascinating (laughs) yeah so um okay great well this sounds really cool and again uh, it sounds like there's been some rough patches as as with many uh Organizations and uh, animal organizations, etc., during the COVID nineteen thing. But let's hope nothing happens where it uh, gets shut back down again. But yeah,
3: uh, no, I we're gonna we'll you know it, we've gotten through tougher times too. So we'll just keep at it. The, the birds are important to us. It's a passion, and I thank you for having me on and letting me talk about them. And everyone, come visit.
0: Yeah, it's great. Okay, we will. Thank you so much, Debbie. Appreciate Thanks your time. Much, thank you. Have a good day. You too. I'm Duncan Strauss for listening to Talking Animals. Coming up at 11 on WMNF, it's Rob Lurie with Radio Activity. Followed at noon by Midpoint with Nola Laleigh. Then at 1 p.m., the music kicks back in with 360 Degrees of Blues, hosted by the great Harrison Nash. Flowing into the also great Scott Elliott and his All Souls edition of It's the Music at 2 p.m., with music continuing into the afternoon, the evening, and beyond. So we're going to get in quickly to... uh, Name That Animal Tune. Again, we're back to the original way of responding. So the prize awarded the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. It's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. Perhaps you can name that animal, too when we get off to here. We have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. I invite you to return next Wednesday at 10. My guest will be Wendy Clark, the publisher of Bird Watchers Digest, as we step into a discussion of birding, which I'm really looking forward to. I will also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives and social media links and the whole shebang that's at TalkingAnimals.net. This is Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa, Brandon Largo, Wiki, Watch, and Beyond.